Welcome to ASM Connected, the podcast brought to you by ASM Technologies. In Series 3, we sit down with business leaders and futurists from across the globe to discuss what emerging tech means to them, how technology impacts workplace culture, and their advice to businesses on how to stay one step ahead of the competition. In this episode, Ian Tomkinson chats to Terence Bennett, the General Manager of Dream Factory Software, discussing cybersecurity, emerging technologies and innovation within the tech sector. Previously, he ran operations at Integrate.io and Team Password and worked on Google's offensive security red team. He served in the US Navy and Navy Intelligence Officer and Surface Warfare Officer during Operation Iraqi Freedom. Hi Terence, welcome to the ASM Connected podcast. Uh, I believe it's good morning to you. Yes, Ian. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm a pleasure to be here. One of the things that we're here to sort of uh, try and look at is emerging technology, innovation. And today we've got a particular angle on cybersecurity, emerging technologies, particularly from probably a different angle than we've approached cybersecurity before, because we're always looking for a different angle, different opinions. And again, these are just different people's opinions so that we can all sort of try and understand a little bit more about the uh, the complex world that is the tech sector out there. So I'm going to start with something, a really nice, easy, settling question. Um, obviously, having spoken to you before, uh, looking at your background, you served in the U.S. Navy as an intelligence officer. So how do you get from being in the U.S. Navy and serving your country to leading a software business? Because they're very, very different, I should imagine. They are very different. You're absolutely right. Um, yeah, it's a funny story. I towards, um, I guess it was probably five, six years into serving. I decided it was it was going to be time soon for me to leave uh, active duty and do something else to find sort of new challenges. And I was deeply interested in technology. You know, I, I grew up building computers as a kid, and um, I was always drawn to to work in tech. And so. It was actually a real challenge when I got out to find to find a job um, in the sector I wanted. I ended up taking a job as an executive assistant at Google on their Google Cloud team, and it was an incredible opportunity to to learn in, um, from some of the, the world's best. I worked for a director of product management and uh, and his team, and um, it allowed me to sort of cut my teeth in tech and and then um, started to build the network within the company. And within well, less than two years, I was. I was on to uh, Google's red team. So I wouldn't necessarily encourage um, that path for people unless you, uh, you're you ready to, to kind of put your nose to the grindstone in that kind of way. But um, for me, I'd done similar work, EA type work in the Navy and it, it came easily to me. And um, it was just an incredible way to see inside an organization, see its priorities, see how it worked, see the culture. Every organization has a little bit of a uh, the bureaucracy that keeps things going um, and executive assistants are typically kind of front and center to that. So um, yeah, it was, it was an incredible way to, uh, to see the inner workings. And then from there saw that, Hey, startups are um, a really interesting way to get even closer to the bleeding edge, get closer to that, that exciting emerging technology. And so I made the jump and um, a lot of the operations work I saw in the Navy translated very well over to, to a startup. Uh, as a naval officer, you're given a team, and you're expected to take what resources you have and to make make it work, right? And um, that's actually quite similar to a startup, right? Uh, so absolutely. My first job was working as a gunnery officer. My second job was working as an um, engineer, auxiliaries officer. I, I worked with um, 
on a lot of sort of technical teams. And at the end of the day, it was about taking a small team and, and motivating them and taking what, el- what the resources were at your disposal and, and executing on the mission. And so um, it actually transits quite well, interestingly enough. Yeah, no, no, I, I fully get that. And interestingly, you know, I speak to a lot of people, particularly uh, you know, obviously in the tech sector, and not many people actually set off to actually do a career in the tech sector. A lot of people fall into it by, uh, I suppose, chance, particularly in sales. You know, everyone starts off and, uh, you know, uh, it, it's a weird path that a lot of people take to get to there. So you're one of the very few that have actually said, I'd like to work in the tech sector and this is what I'm going to do. Um, and thankfully, I think I, I did the same. I, I could see the future of it, and uh, I really wanted to uh, to get involved with that. And, and sales was my routine. So, uh, so yeah. But there's not not many uh, people that have chosen to uh, end up particularly in sales. But uh, it, I don't think it's the key offering when you're at high school, anyway. Um, <laughs> but there we go. Interesting, you mentioned there your, your time in in the uh, the Google Red team. Um, that sounds really quite cool and mysterious. I'm sure it is. So. For a lot of the audience, some people will know what a red team is um, and the importance of that. You know, other people might not. Just just for the benefit of the listeners, you know, can you share what the core function of a red team is, please? Absolutely. From what I've read, actually, it originated in the Navy or in the military, at least, with um, teams that were asked to essentially try and penetrate a base. Um, so to, to break in and steal, steal something just to demonstrate how would a third actor actually go ahead and do this. And so... At a certain point in any organization's cybersecurity journey, they will realize that they've sort of built the walls as high as they can. They've patched as many of the holes in the, those walls. They've, they've developed the internal systems to, uh, to, to try and detect an intruder when they get in. Now they have to start testing it. And um, at Google, it started in 2009 after a pretty high profile attack. Um, and it started with something called the Orange Team which were sort of part-time, like one-week exercises where engineers, typically security engineers, would try and attack some specific part of the architecture. Um, And that lasted for years and years until some orange teamers became sort of full-time red teamers. At first, it was one or two, and then it sort of built out into this team. And so I was the first program manager hired on the U.S. team to help sort of build out that, that program and build out the documentation and build out the process so it could be done repeatedly and efficiently. And, and the biggest thing is when you go through this whole attack, um, actually documenting every piece of it. And so um, at every sort of turn through that attack, you can say, this is what enabled that, this attack. And this is what was actually effective, right? Or, or you, you put this sort of guard in place expecting it to act this way, but it actually acted that way. And so it didn't, it didn't actually function the way you expected, right? And so it, it acts... Um, so the red team at sort of a high level is doing two key things. It is finding bugs. It is finding vulnerabilities. But it is uh, far and away the most expensive way to possibly find vulnerabilities in your system. Um, so if that's all you're looking for, you can, there's better ways of doing it. Um, the other key thing that red teaming is great for is acting as a sparring partner for your detection response team. And so uh, we would always be running exercises in lockstep with them, with with really with with uh, DNR leadership, and occasionally they would find us, and uh, and their leadership would actually hold off on notifying them, and so they could actually have the team on call respond as though it were a real incident. And at a team at a company like Google, you don't have intrusions, and so this is you get you end up with a team that's actually never kind of had that 
oh shoot moment, right? <laughs> Where they, uh, the, the pucker factor is super high and you're like, oh my gosh, I just found an, an attacker on the network, like code red, right? Mm-hmm. And so being able to simulate that um, as close to real life as possible is incredibly valuable. And, and so, yeah, that's a lot of what we did. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun, uh, needless to say, and um, amazing team, amazing people. So. So, so yeah, huge cat and mouse uh, project basically, and uh, yeah, okay, uh, that, that's quite cool. And uh, I, I suppose uh, Google's a complex business, and uh, for, from my perspective, you know, there's different types of uh, organisations, and, and I should think even more complex from a security perspective, especially as it's so many apps that provide upload content too, which has to surely increase the risk. And I, I'm sure Google is innovating and providing its own security solutions. But does it rely on a, a strong network of tried and trusted vendors in specialist areas such as identity, API, and, and those technologies? Or does it rely on a, a hybrid? How, how, how does that work with obviously out giving out too much away? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Google's really entirely homegrown. It's, um, it's actually quite impressive how much they've built. And because they invented a lot of this early technology going back a decade, um, there's actually kind of no architecture quite like Google's as well, because so much of it was homegrown when this technology didn't even really exist in the in the sort of public public market or you know private market, but sort of public space, right? So everything's more or less homegrown, and it's why you see a lot of really interesting coming out of Google. Um, obviously, they were first to come to market with a lot of um, um, authentication identity um, technology around Google Workspace. I'm not sure if you're familiar with um, the Advanced Protection Program, but it's um, it's a way to lock down your Google Workspace account and and um, in an even sort of more significant way to uh, mitigate attacks. Um, and it requires use of a a YubiKey or a a Titan key. That's their their own brand of a physical hardware key. Yep. So. Long answer to say no. It's really it's all homegrown, and I think it's part of the reason why um, it it is such a challenging target because you can't just apply like a typical kind of rootkit type, you know, set of hacker tools um, to that environment and expect it to work. It's just not it's not you know consistent. Okay, so just sort of uh, rewinding back. So uh, obviously, red teams are, are from from mine are something that notoriously full of. Uh, convicted hackers who, who've uh, had some success against the likes of uh, the security services and, and you hear these stories that they've hacked in and are actually they've actually given them a job is, is that a little bit of a myth or, or does that kind of thing actually happen um you know frankly i don't know i've never heard um actual real life stories like that but <clears throat> we definitely hire from the former security services for sure yeah. and obviously i have that i have that background as well so yeah, that, that kind of makes sense because, uh, yeah, I suppose you're wanting a different mindset. You're wanting that sort of uh, innovator and that kind of uh, somebody who's um, who's not necessarily going to play by the rules, which comes to, I suppose, uh, you know, as part of that team, are you allowed to play dirty and try some, you know, all the tricks um, as a potential threat or, or do you have to play by the rules a little bit? So you bring up a really interesting point, which is um... – a red teamer has to be able to kind of put on that adversary hat, right? And think about um, an attack from an attacker's perspective, right? Which which is a unique sort of challenge, especially if you spent 20 years working within a company and thinking like a, an internal Google engineer. But to answer your question, yes, we absolutely are um, are able to. And, and we are giving sort of uh, that, that privilege from 
Google leadership early on to um, to, to mimic an attack exactly what it would, it would happen, right? So you're you're talking about um, very very sort of uh, sophisticated and and um, targeted uh, phishing attacks, and you're talking about taking control of a employee's computer for a period of time, um, but doing it in a way that they're not ca- caught on to what's going on and report it, right? Because that that happens all the time too. It's like I, I saw this weird behavior on my on my machine, you know, and boom, you're caught, right? So um, I've seen all sorts of funny stuff um, from, you know, rubber ducky, which is essentially like it um, would be like a USB drive that if you were to put into your computer would infect your drive. Uh, putting a rubber ducky in, in line with a charging cable in a conference room. And so when people sit down at the conference room, they go to plug in the USB-C charging cable and, and boom, they're, they're done, they're popped. Or finding a specific engineer on... Uh, on the team that we want to attack and um, and doing a deep dive into their online presence and finding all the things that they are interested in and then building entire websites and entire campaigns around what we think they'd click on. And the one that jumps to mind is a, um, a woman who was very into cats and marathon running. And so we literally built a made up marathon of, of around cats. Right? Wow. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, so we built this entire website out and this entire sort of sign up form and everything else, only to, um, to to send it only to her, so that way she would then click on the registration link and we could put a uh, put an implant into the onto her computer that way. Uh, and that shows you, I suppose, uh, you know, I, I've heard about the USB stick and I've heard of uh, obviously sort of wind back probably seven, 10 years, you know, one of the, the key giveaways was a, a really pretty looking USB stick, quite a cool one. It might have lots of different things. And um, the, the one that I used to hear about is that, you know, you could basically outside a large corporate building, just drop a couple of like that. And people go, oh, that's cool. I'm having that. Oh, I wonder if there's anything on it. Plug it in and bang, you're, you're in basically. Um, but when you sort of talk about the extent that those um, those attackers will go to, it just sort of highlights how on your toes that you really need to be um, because if someone is prepared, you know, and it might be, yeah, just one person, you might have somehow found out that that one person works for company X. Um, yes, you can go on their Facebook page. You can start to get a little bit of information like you've just shared. If someone's cat into cats and marathon running, then you just need to send them a link about that. And then, well, hey, it's, yeah, it's quite scary, really. It is a, for me. It goes to show that if you get big enough uh, as an organization, you have to assume that you're going to have a breach at some point. You have to assume that, and so there's an entire then change in philosophy around the way that you're going to protect your infrastructure and using what you know what we call in the, in the field and as actually a military term of defense in depth, right? And so at every sort of turn within every network, you need to lock down absolutely um, every sort of aspect of what way an attacker would be able to pivot and move around. And, and Google um, has instituted what they call zero, a zero trust architecture. I know that's become like a, it's a bit of a buzzword, right? But by forcing all users to use physical hardware keys and implementing zero trust that requires that reauthentication and that um, every, you know, essentially every time you move between systems, they make it incredibly difficult for an attacker to, to move around. So at, at every sort of turn, um, you actually have to find a new victim, a, a new computer to um, to breach to, to move into that that next level 
or that next system, the parallel system, right? Versus a lot of networks, once you're in, you, you get a free for all, right? Yeah. Um, and you need to have detection response systems in place to kind of set up, like, if you will, the tripwires to when an attacker does move in, you can figure out um, how they got in or at least where they are, right? And how to how to contain the breach. So, I mean, this is a conversation I have a lot with people. We, we have to get away from this idea that we can just build our, our walls taller and keep them all out. It's just not possible. Not if you're going to make it an enterprise sort of system and architecture usable by its employees. Yeah, and that's the challenge, isn't it? Because you still need to be able to deliver a usable uh, network to, to, to the users that, that has pace, but trying to keep everyone out. And I do think that is, a, I'm seeing a lot more with uh, some of the vendors that we speak to. And I think everyone's gone from, at the end of the day, it's going to happen to you at some point, but how do you limit that damage to to something um, that is controllable and when they have penetrated the network how do we know where they came in because the chances are they might have been having a snoop for the next time they come in and then they're going to do more damage so how do we capture it how do we control it uh, and also if they do what's happened to my data have they actually taken it because a lot of enterprise particularly in that enterprise space the issue that we see today is not the fact that somebody's been in, even though that's a significant issue, is that they don't know about it for months on end. Mm -hmm. And then it's, oh, my data's on the dark web, which then becomes a, a significant problem. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that, that's, uh, and, and I suppose in, in terms of, uh, you know, enterprise security is obviously complex and challenging because those networks can be vast, extremely complex. Quite often, you've got legacy technology mixed in with the, you know, the the latest technology, and and it can be really challenging. And can we remove a significant number of threats by getting the basic rights, basic rights such as encryption, endpoint, API security, is an example, which I know is an, an area of expertise for yourself. It, can can we get on top of that? Absolutely, and. Um... And I think you just sort of nailed a lot of it, right? I think everyone sort of is aware now around uh, the need for encryption at rest. Encryption in transit can get a little more challenging, I think, for uh, some legacy sort of enterprise environments where you're you're moving data internally. Um, and so what we're seeing a lot of and um, what my company does now, Dream Factory, is we are a platform largely for internal facing API management, but also external facing it. And, and what we can do and, and what we're seeing customers do every day is uh, is sort of rip out all of those custom, often unencrypted direct connectors into databases that um, can make a breach that much worse because it's sort of this open connection at the database that is not audited and, and doesn't have sort of fine fine comb uh, or fine sort of permission set within it. And by implementing REST APIs across your network, um, not only can you give apps only the exact data they need access to, it's all encrypted. It's all set up with role-based access. You can rate limit it. So if there is a breach, you can make sure that it's minimized. You know, just last month, Twitter had a massive breach of 30, 37 million records, or maybe it was 37 customer, million customers' records, so even more records than that. And it, the first thing that comes to mind for me is clearly they didn't have rate limiting set up because whatever the API that did have a vulnerability in it was supposed to be serving, I could be pretty sure it wasn't 37 million records, right? And if yeah. with simple controls in place, a lot of these horrendous breaches like that would be uh, 
mitigate to the point where they'd be newsworthy, but, but barely. Right. Um, and I think that's to your point about like getting the basics, right. We can't live in this world anymore where things are just kind of open and there's this like open trust within the network. Um, to go back to this idea of like zero trust, you have to put in controls at every single place. And there's a ton of tools and, and REST APIs are this wonderful um, open technology that um, there's a million open source tools to use and build off of. Um, and, and obviously then on like the, the security side, there's a ton of really powerful tools that allow you to lock them down. Yeah, and thankfully that is something, believe it or not, even though I'm a, a humble sales guy, I have heard of uh, REST APIs. I've uh, been working with a number of vendors uh, over a number of years. Um, so, so yeah, I am familiar with that technology and, and the additional uh, security that can provide. And they're, they're typically, historically anyway, and I think you know, uh, organizations such as your own are probably making it more accessible. But I think historically that technology has been very, very expensive and probably only accessible to the really large enterprise organizations and government and federal organizations. And I think that that's probably been the challenge, whereas I think uh, say organizations like yourself are making that technology more accessible to probably your, your normal-sized enterprise rather than the global uh, businesses. Am, am I correct in that? Yeah, I would say so. I, I think what you end up with is um, startups are you know who are building sort of native find it very easy to um, to build with APIs in mind. And, and often there's, there's actually a bunch of great new platforms where you, if you're building your app within this platform, it's going to have like a built-in database connected to it and a built-in API. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, if you've got a really robust API program, you might have you know um, hundreds of engineers working on APIs. You can obviously afford. To, um, to to build that really robust security, but it, it's it's those uh, companies caught in the middle where they don't have the the money to build that robust team to do this. So maybe they've they've even thought they haven't even thought about monetizing their data via API because they just it does the ROI is not quite there yet. And so tools like Dream Factory and there's like I said, there's a ton of other really powerful tools, a lot of which are open source, are making that much much more readily available. And just the rise of tools like Postman that exist to help customers manage the the APIs they're ingesting kind of go to show how incredibly prolific this technology is. And it's interesting because a lot of people haven't even heard of APIs, but it's it's kind of the connective tissue that powers the internet, right? Because how are you going to be able to share your internal data, your IP with um, a partner, with a with another with a vendor if you're not going to do it in a hyper secure way? So it's that trust that allows companies to really work together and, and tie their systems together in powerful ways. Yeah, actually, I, I had, I had um, we, we've worked with a vendor for many years who's um, they, they provide a secure API gateway device, and it's a, it, it, it's now they've also got a platform now, but they used to have a physical product, and um, it, it's to kind of military standard, so it's FIPS accredited and, and really robust, and. Um, Obviously, uh, the renewal was coming up for the support and the maintenance, and this one company came along and went, um, oh, we don't want to pay for the additional support and the maintenance on this device. We're going to get this third party to do it. And I was like, okay, that's that's really great, because, but you know it's got a tamper-proof device on it, so if anyone apart from the vendor themselves tries to tell it, it's just going to shut it all down. So um, unless you know something that we don't, um, 
by all means crack on but you know it, it's uh yeah when you're talking about that level of security and the kind of solutions that you're looking at particularly to a military or higher end enterprise standard um someone comes along with a bright idea like that and it just isn't going to work but uh but hey you live and learn but that was uh, one of my stories from from uh, a few years ago in, in terms of emerging tech as a whole you know it creates this huge cat and mouse game and uh, the technology is created for you know technology you know we're creating technology to gain improvements uh, you know, it might be savings efficiencies. It might be, um, I suppose, IoT is a great example. You know, I, I've got a, a few contacts who are in that space and, uh, you know, they're, they're talking about uh, an IoT device and a storm drain so they can predict the flow of water and let you know if there's a problem within the storm drain or anything like that. And I suppose the bad guys, as I'll call them, uh, for, for the purpose of the podcast and very simplistic, I know, but uh, um, the bad guys, are kind of looking to exploit those um, spaces as it's often overlooked by security, I suppose, specialists. And and it's probably a new technology, and uh, the term I'll use is the, the belt and braces approach to, uh, I suppose, uh, that kind of solution is kind of quite um, unusual. We don't want to restrict innovation, so how can the enterprise have a strategy that enables them to run with emerging technology, but also offering robust protection? Um, and I know that's a, I'm not going to get a simple answer to a very complex question like that, because uh, that, that doesn't tend to, to be the case. But endpoints, be it IoT, be it a user, the more and more put, sort of spaces we create the chances are that we're going to create more of a space for someone to get into so how, how do we control that yeah, it's interesting um interesting question i think often the answer is to work with trusted vendors who have thought through these problems and thought through how to how to maneuver in this new space in a way that is um that's responsible and thoughtful and deliberate right i mean the only other option really is to try and hire those people into your team and do it yeah. right um, and I think the other the other thing is, frankly, to be deliberate about what you choose to implement within your system. I think what can get dangerous and just as a waste of money is kind of running after every new, exciting, seemingly exciting technology and, and thinking that you, you, if it's new and exciting, you need it within, you know, to kind of add on to your, to your product, right? I mean, the joke in the Valley for a long time has been every new startup is like such and such with AI, with ML, right? It's like, we're going to sort of tack on this ML engine next to, on, on to like a boring product and it's going to suddenly be cool and new. And uh, and it's obviously not that simple. Um, and and a, <laughs> a lot of those companies are failing right now because they actually didn't have anything special, unique. So I think the question is to go back to first principles and, and you know, if you're a leader in your company and the, the, the company is looking to you for that strategic guidance is, is really go back to first principles and ask that question on like, what is our strategic advantage and how would this help? And if the answer isn't something profound, then maybe it, it's worth just letting, letting it go and not worrying about it for the time being, right? Re revisiting in, in a quarter or two. And so like, I, I think uh, this sort of race that we're seeing right now with regard to AI is a really interesting one. Um, there's obviously a million startups popping up left and right using OpenAI's uh, ChatGPT um, and GPT-3 and soon to be um, GPT-4. 
I think a lot of companies need to kind of slow down and just ask, like, okay, how does this how does this change the market? How does this change our environment? And and does it act does it actually change what we're doing? Right. All the, you know, OpenAI's been around for some time, right? The only reason everyone's so excited about right now in the last since November 30th or whatever it was was because of the chat tool that kind of made it more interactable. But these models have been around, and there's companies who've been figuring out how to how to use it to add value. So I just um, I think it's it's maybe about even slowing down a little bit in what feels like a really kind of chaotic and and crazy rushed world and and asking these deep questions around how, like what does this actually change? How does this actually affect my business? Okay, so I've th- you've brought me onto a great subject. Obviously, very very topical AI, Chat GPT. I have had a tinker myself and had a out of a bit of a play with it. But I was listening to a podcast the other day, um, the other weekend, and the guy on there was a was a coder. Um, he knew his way around um, artificial intelligence, and he actually said, I'm, I, "I tested it. I tested it." He said, "I asked it to write a piece of code to solve this problem in Python," and he said, um, it, "It came up." He said, "Not only did it tell me." write the code, which I wanted it to do. It actually said, unlike other coders, it actually told me what bit was functioning to do what part of the the problem. And he said, I've been writing in Python for 10, 15 years. And he said, it wrote it as well as I possibly could. So I I was thinking, coming back, bringing this back to the security conversation, as I suppose a layman's person you know i'm not a coder could i ask something like chat gpt to write a string of code to get me into someone's network without having the skills to do it in theory in theory sure but what it's ultimately doing is it's looking across um the python sort of repositories it's looking across all of the literature out there around cybersecurity and 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 best um, best practices of cybersecurity, and it's applying that knowledge to whatever sort of system you're talking about. So what I would argue is it makes um, people like this gentleman much more efficient because he's been coding for 15 years. He actually understands what's going on, and he can then apply that code and be all the more efficient. Um, and it can get people who maybe don't don't have the ability to code, but sort of conceptually understand what's going on and can get and can create scripts for them that are useful. What it's not going to be able to do is anything novel because it can only, it's only based on what people have previously done. And the reason it's so effective in Python is because Python is, I think it's fair to say the most well-documented language out there. There's an absolutely incredible, incredible amount of, of repos and, and um, thoughtful documentation around what, what's out there and what you can do with Python. And so ChatGPT is very good at finding you um, common vulnerabilities in code. Um, what it's not going to find you, I, th- I think I think this is fair to say, and I'd actually love for your audience if they could correct me on this. I don't think it's going to find a zero day because by very nature, a zero day hasn't been found. So what it, what it can't do is anything remote, uh, remotely novel, right? What it can do is recreate what people have recreated multiple times or created multiple times in the past and documented very, very well. And so I love the the sort of meme of chat GPT is not going to take your job, but somebody using it will. Because I think that's really the world we're coming to is it's going to be this, this incredibly powerful kind of co-pilot to borrow the, uh, the GitHub 
branding, right? Um, it's going to be incredibly powerful at helping people who work in Excel every day create even better, more robust, better, you know, more resilient Excel formulas. It's going to help coders move faster and, and automate a lot of like the simple, you know, infrastructure and, and simple code that gets out in their way so they can spend more time thinking really hard and deep around some of the challenging problems that they're facing. Um, and, and that sort of list goes on and on, right? It, it gets a little more sort of trickier around content, right? But once again, like, you know, there's a million stories out there of, of ChatGPT writing content that's just incredibly, like, just wrong, like fundamentally wrong. It does it with a tremendous amount of confidence and, uh, and sort of eloquence. And so you, what you need is those subject matter experts to read, to deeply understand what it's talking about and be able to correct it, right? And so I, I think there's a place for it in this, in this ecosystem, and it reminds me of the, the, uh, a story I heard about when calculators first were introduced into classrooms, people threw up their arms and said, we can't, how are we going to teach math anymore, right? Obviously, they found a way to teach math. And I think the average student is doing much higher level, level math than they could have done pre-calculator. And I think that's the world we're, we're in. Yeah, and uh, I read a fascinating article, and it was uh, from, from somebody at Google the other day. And it basically explained it in layman's terms as to why uh, chat GPT can get so much right. And, and you've kind of highlighted that, but also why it can get certain things wrong. And I think it was down to the, the story was down to data compression uh, and the way that data compression works is quite simple. And sometimes when you compress data and you compress it and you compress it, you lose some of its authenticity or, or, or credibility effectively. And then the, the, basically the argument was chat BT is trying to compress the entire internet. Um, so as you said, all those things are repeated time and time again, like Python, like a, I suppose, a language, like might be a formula in Excel or something like that. They're repeated time and time again. So it, it can, even without that compression, it will work really, really well. However, you try and bring in a little bit of innovation or something in that, that's when it's going to absolutely fall down because it can't innovate because it, it's not an intelligent being. It's just using that compressed data that's already out there. Mm-hmm. The article read it a lot better than I, I'm sort of uh, explaining that to you now, but it, it it actually made sense to me. And I was like, oh, that's why it can't handle that, but it can handle that because it's that kind of a, that compression. And, you you know, how much data is out there on the Internet? You're never going to be able to compress all that and, and get a decent answer on one small question out of it. So. Yeah, it does make sense. But and it goes back to this idea of it can it's really good at, at pattern recognition and and doing what's been done in the past. Yeah. And what it's not going to do is invent us a new a new technology, not without a lot of hand holding, right? Um and uh from from intelligent humans who are who are thinking, you know, two, three steps ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Um and I suppose um we you know, we we've covered off uh, I suppose one one of the uh, I suppose the the big sort of topics in, in emerging tech uh, there but coming back have you you know in your sort of uh, journey be it in security in ai or, or whatever have you come across any startup technologies that have made you think wow that's brilliant you know what you know it might be a technology or, or a piece of software have you, have you come across anything um I mean, there's a, there's a ton of really exciting stuff uh going on one of which is um some labs are working on ways to code with biology Essentially, using um, using the building blocks of of the way our bodies are built, being actually sort of um, in understanding how the how the signals between cells and, and between those building blocks work, 
can actually uh, sort of build um, at that at that level. And I think that's going to be a really really exciting technology we'll see um, evolve over over the coming years. Um, I'm not a biologist, which is maybe why it's so absolutely fascinating to me. But this idea of of, um, of kind of getting to a level of understanding of, of biological functions and, and like cellular level to be able to then kind of mimic the way the body manipulates those those kind of otherwise kind of dumb building blocks and, and being able to build build that way to me is absolutely fascinating. Yeah, that, that's one I came across recently that just kind of blew my mind. But um, you know, you can get you can get excited about quantum computing. I think that's some some ways away. The obvious answer is, you know, what we're seeing with OpenAI. Like that's that's the one I talk about over uh, with with friends over beers and stuff. I was was having a conversation yesterday with some, some neighbors, but um, but yeah, th- there's just there's wildly crazy stuff happening in every sort of sector in every corner of the uh, the economy. Yeah, and that that um, biology based uh, sort of connection. We, we've worked with a, a futurist, a guy called uh, Matt Griffin, and and Matt is. Uh, look it, look him up. I would recommend anyone looking at Matt's uh, work. He, he's a great guy. He covers lots and lots of different topics. He's absolutely amazing, full of energy. And uh, we were lucky enough to have him to present at an event for us um, uh, in, in the summer just gone. And uh, one of the things he was talking about was DNA-based storage mm-hmm. because the way that a, a string of code, obviously DNA is just a string of code in terms of how we're made up biologically and people are using a similar process to be able to store, uh, I suppose, data. Um, and Matt explained that, and uh, we, we had a number of guests at the event, and you could just see the look on people's faces like, wow, that is so cool. And uh, so many people uh, you know, uh, came over to us after the event and, uh, and, and I mentioned it afterwards. But, yeah, I, I think that is quite cool. So uh, I'm, I'm glad someone else has picked up on that. But, um, yeah, uh, Matt Griffin, he, he's, a, he's a great guy, and, he did, and I know he'll appreciate the uh, – the shout out so uh so yeah um have a look at some of his stuff i will definitely coming to a, a very obvious question i suppose uh, to someone who's involved with, with security should organizations have someone at board level senior management that has medium to advanced understanding of cybersecurity risks and can people like uh you know an enterprise's reseller and system integrated partners do more to assist in your opinion Absolutely. Every every company needs somebody who's cybersecurity literate to deeply understand um, how their systems um, fit into this larger ecosystem and where they can add value, but but also where they might actually be a vulnerability depending on, um, or liability probably is a better word, uh, in, a, in a system. And I equate it to the fact that you we live in a, a system, you know, a, a, a cultural and social construct where laws are the sort of prevailing um, method of, of resolving conflict and you would need a lawyer on your board to not have a lawyer on the board would be absolutely, you know, insane. And so we live in, I think a world today where, or at least pretty close where cybersecurity is, um, has the same level of technical specificity and you would, yeah, you'd be at fault of negligence if you didn't have somebody who deeply understands those ideas and, and those concepts and how, and how your system and your solution and your product fit into that world, um, because otherwise it's just um, you're asking for some some pretty big blind spots and problems. Yeah, and I, I suppose the key thing is that you know 
you know, not every startup, not every organization that can afford that. So that's where the role of the reseller and the system integrator with access to all those technologies, vendors, partners, I suppose, can support that process. Um, because, you know, it, it's uh, every head counts in a startup and uh, sometimes it's the difference between survival and and and, uh, and, and failure. But, um, but yeah, no, I, I'd agree with you. I think uh, larger organizations, um, I, I, and I th- we are seeing it more and more. And I think, you know, we're all seeing the, uh, the CISO sort of uh, uh, role becoming commonplace these days, particularly in the enterprise. So, uh, so yeah, no, I, I'd wholly agree with you. And um, just to sort of, uh, I know we could talk all day about the various different technologies and some of the cool stuff that's out there. Um, conscious of time, and I know uh, you, you've still got the whole day ahead of you. I've got a couple of just very quick fire questions here just to sort of wrap up the uh, the podcast and uh, we, we can uh, get you on your way as such. So I suppose technology, I speak to a number of people that uh, are passionate about technology for good. Some people are also thinking that technology is going to finish us all off and that AI is going to go wild and crazy, particularly if you speak to someone down at the local pub at the weekend, they're all petrified of it. What's your thoughts? Is technology going to kill us all at the end or are we going to have more tech for good? I'm a self-proclaimed techno-optimist, so I don't think I'd be in this field if I didn't believe it was um, It was not only going to free us of a lot of the constraints of um of like the human condition around disease and, and, and pain and, um, uh, and like, and what, what a lot of people sort of experience as misery in this world. Um, I, I think it has, yeah, I think it has the ability to enrich our lives in the most sort of profound ways. And, um, I would, like I said, I wouldn't be doing this work if I didn't feel that way. So yeah, I'm definitely for tech. <laughs> great, great. Good stuff. And, and, uh, in terms of tech, what's your favorite tech gadget? So I guess in line with that, I, I'm a huge sort of biohacker. I love, um, trying to uh, to sort of measure my own body and measure how different inputs change um, my sort of experience, right? Whether that's um, just how I feel, how I sleep, um, how, how I'm sort of experiencing the day. So Fitbit, I think, is uh, is my gadget of choice because I'm wearing one right now. And, um, I you know, I, I play around with a lot of different things like um, continuous glucose monitors to, to – uh, to measure my glucose over the day based on different things that I eat. And I can see how different foods affect my body and affect my energy. But the Fitbit is this incredible tool that is very accessible. You know, entry-level Fitbit costs $100 new. I think you probably get one for half that um, on eBay. And it gives you so much insight into um, into your body and how you're reacting to the day, how you're, um, how you're sleeping. So... It's like an entry level kind of a gateway, gateway drug, if you will, to this sort of biohacking scene and the ability to to really kind of dial in your own your own experience and your own um, the way you're living your life. Yeah, um, I, I got a one of the um, I got some. I'm a, I'm an Android guy, and uh, I got on a Samsung Galaxy. Yeah, and, and it is kind of kind of quite scary of how much information you do get. I had a Garmin before that. And that was even more scary, yeah. Uh, particularly uh, yep. if you you do a bit of exercise, or go out for a run, and you start looking at the, uh, you know, your recovery time from doing certain exercises, and yeah, it's kind of quite scary. But also, as you say, you know, it, it's quite informative, and uh, I'm sure there's a lot of people who um, who do have health conditions that it's a huge benefit. Um, talking about glucose monitoring, uh, you know, I've got a family member who's type one diabetic, and the way that technology is really helping them to sort of monitor that condition um, with real time scanning. You know, you you don't even have to need to do your 
uh, do a finger prick these days. You can mm-hmm. literally do a uh, you will scan your arm with a, with a phone, and you quite often see people walking around with a little white disc on their arm. And uh, yeah, it's absolutely crazy. Now, I believe that technology as well comes off from um, was copied from um, the inkjet printer. Um, the way that the insulin pump works and it can give that very precise dose of medicine um the technology was stolen off an inkjet printer so there you go wow that's pretty cool that's incredible yeah and and so my my reference to the continuous glucose monitor was there's a bunch of startups that now sell that as a service so i did uh one month of of wearing one and uh and i learned that um i'm pretty sensitive to, to carbohydrates for instance and that um my the way I, my body was reacting wasn't um, wasn't sort of what I what I was concerned around, which was like potential pre diabetes. It was actually the opposite. Is my body was becoming sort of hypoglycemic after eating large amounts of carbs. What a powerful thing to know, yeah, and be able to control now, you know, um, and actually just for me have like the the why under the why, um, not just like this is the thing I'm experiencing. I can react to it, but actually deep, deeply understanding why. That's tech for good, I'm sure, healthcare and all, all those other great industries. Um, brilliant to have you on the show today. Um, really, really appreciate your time. Um, great talking to you. So we could talk all day about the uh, different technologies and things out there. Uh, great overview. Um, thanks for your time, Terence. Really appreciated. I hope you have a good day and uh, we'll speak to you soon. Thanks, Ian. Yeah, I uh, appreciate being on. It was a lot of fun. Have a good one. Great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of ASM Connected with guest Terence Bennett. If you've enjoyed this episode, subscribe now to make sure you never miss an update and check out the other episodes in the series. To find out more about the team at ASM Technologies, visit asmtech.com. This is ASM Connected.